0: Turn, if you would, to chapter one of the book of Romans. I decided that since we've had an introduction to it, we can actually start through the book. This is the fortieth lesson, this is the last lesson. We are going to review the book of Romans to remind ourselves what we've covered. To let you know where we're going after this, come January we're going to start the life of David. So we'll go back to the Old Testament and we'll work through the life of David. Uh, Between now and then we have four lessons left in the year. Uh, We will be off the week of the cantata, so just plan that. And uh, on Christmas Day, there will be no lessons, and on New Year's Day, there will be no lesson. So we have four lessons left. My first thought was to do something Christmassy, and I may still give in to that temptation. But my second thought is, and we'll probably end up doing this, I think we're going to do the Book of Ecclesiastes in four lessons, because that may be all you can handle of the Book of Ecclesiastes <laughs> without going out and shooting yourself. We have spent 39 lessons working our way through the 16 chapters of the book of Romans. Trust me, we scratched the surface. Donald Barnhouse became the pastor of a church in, I believe, Philadelphia, showed up the first Sunday, started Romans, verse 1, chapter 1. He made it through the verse. The second week, he didn't quite make it through verse 2. So he picked that up in the third week. Five or six hundred sermons later, he finished the book of Romans. I doubt if he repeated himself too much. Romans is the gospel. It is Paul describing the gospel to the church at Rome and for all of us. As we noted last week, he didn't really have any major complaints about the church at Rome. He didn't blast them for immorality. He didn't accuse them of teaching false uh, teaching. He just wanted to remind them of what the gospel was. So we are going to work our way through the book of Romans chapter by chapter. Chapter 1, and I think that gives me about two and a half minutes per chapter <laughs> we'll hurry at the end. Verse 16 of chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther went to confession hours every day, hours and hours. He was a monk, and the person hearing the confession just said, why don't you leave and come back when you've really done something wrong, when you've really done something that you need to confess. But Martin Luther knew that the scripture said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he knew he wasn't doing that. If that was the criteria by which he was going to be saved, he knew he was in trouble. And he was studying the book of Romans. He was studying this verse. What does it mean, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ? And what he realized is that it is not my righteousness that saves me. I can sit here and try to do good deeds until I drop dead, and I will never merit entering the presence of a holy God. What this is referring to is the righteousness of Christ given to us so that we can stand before God, not clothed in our own pitiful righteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is the gospel. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. It is God's power to save us. That's the good news. But after that, we move into the bad news in chapter 1. Because you see, if I'm going to present the gospel to you, If I am going to convince you that God provided the way to be saved, I first have to convince you that you need to be saved. Wait a minute. I'm not that bad. You should see that guy that lives next door to me. For those of you who don't know, he's on staff at the church (laughs) and is, in fact, my brother-in-law. But we sit here and we compare ourselves to other people, and I'm not that bad. Or we compare ourselves to some standard that we created that we know we can meet, and I'm not that bad. So the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 is a discussion. In fact, it's a tearing apart of all those arguments that say, I'm not that bad. The rest of chapter 1 is some of the most important doctrine in the scripture. What we learn is that God has revealed himself to us in nature, in the world around us. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, but we choose to worship the created thing rather than the creator. And God says, fine, you go do that. And we see this downward spiral where God allows us to do what we want to do and that is the punishment. We don't worship God so he gives us over and we fall into sensuality and we fall into and we fall into. It is that downward spiral. And what do we get out of that? We get the wrath of God. We have to understand the wrath of God, or we will never understand the gospel of God. If we believe we're all pretty good people and God will let us in because we're all pretty good people. It's like an article I read years ago talked about the fact there's this huge argument about salvation by works or salvation by faith and all that. He said, modern Americans believe in salvation by death alone. You die, you're you're saved. Because why would a loving God... Well, a loving God would do it because you chose to walk away. God provided, God demonstrated, and we chose to do something else. That is the wrath of God. Chapter 2. Ah, let's think of some good excuses. But you didn't tell me. Have you heard that one before? I didn't know. God said you did know. We had a discussion about the law. There is a written law. Moses goes up on the mountain. God writes it out. Moses comes down off the mountain. He sees the people in rebellion. He smashes it. He goes back up the mountain. He gets copy number two. He comes, at, he comes down. There's the written law. But what about all those people before Moses who went up the mountain To get the law. Were they off the hook because there was no law before that point? But there was a law. There was a law written on the human heart. To me, this is fascinating, having dealt with all of my children over the years. Something happens and they go, But that's not fair. Now, it may be right or it may be wrong. As I've told them before, you know, life's not fair but it's not fair for everybody, therefore it's fair. (laughs) Think about it for a while. (laughs) But regardless of the circumstance, where do they get that idea that life is supposed to be fair? Where do they get this idea that there is a right and wrong? We in our fallen state may be messed up about what goes in the category of right and what goes in the category of wrong, but we know there's a category. Where did that come from? God putting the law in our heart. We are without excuse. We are without excuse. The person who has never heard the gospel should be driven to the gospel by nature and by the world around them. But they choose to reject that. We are without excuse. Chapter 3. If you remember the passage in chapter 3, it says, "Okay, who is there that seeks after God? No one. Who does what is right? No one. No one does what is good. No one does what is right?" Let's just look at that, okay? Chapter 3 verse uh, We'll pick it up at the second half of verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouths is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. You get the picture, right? Wait a minute. I know somebody and they're real nice. They are real nice people. Apart from God, they're not that nice in God's eyes. There are good, old-fashioned pagans who love their spouses. They love their children. They want to do good things. But in the eyes of God, they are living a life of rebellion Because they refuse to acknowledge the creator as the creator and the Lord of the universe. Is this passage that I just read, is this passage talking about those really bad people? Or is it talking about all of us? The answer is it's talking about all of us. Once again. We, as 21st century Americans, want to convince ourselves that all of us are pretty good. We're okay. We don't do too bad a thing. We're all okay, but not in God's eyes. Romans 3. um, For by the works of the law, verse 20, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law came knowledge of sin. Wait a minute, wasn't the law supposed to save me? No. The law was going to tell you what sin was so that you would know that you were guilty. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23. All, all of humanity have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But back up to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. What is this righteousness? What is this righteousness that Martin Luther was so anxious to find? It is the righteousness of God given to us. The law, however you want to interpret the law, whether it is the written code that came down from the top of the mountain with Moses, whether it is the law written on your heart, whether it is some made-up list that we concocted, you will never provide a law that will save you. Why? Because we're sinners and we need a Savior. No one is righteous, but God gives us a righteousness that is by faith. Half the church at Rome, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but I'll make up half, were Jews who had been converted. So throughout the book, we have all these passages, you know, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jews did this, the Greeks did this, and then at the end, it talks about we're all being, you know, merged together. But if you're a good Jew, you're sitting there going, okay, The law was given to us, the Jews. It must have been good for something, or God wouldn't have given it to us. Surely we are blessed because we got the law and they didn't. What about Abraham? Whatever new theory you come up with, Paul, it's got to work with Abraham or it doesn't work at all. So when Paul wants to talk about justification, being saved... By faith alone, he brings Abraham out as his example. Now just as an aside, this is fascinating because when James wants an example of that salvation that doesn't produce works is not really salvation, he uses Abraham. But if you look at it closely, they're looking at different parts of Abraham's life. God had made promises to Abraham. You'll have a son. The descendants will be greater than the stars of the sky. The entire world will be blessed by your descendant. And Abraham was getting old. And his wife Sarah was getting old. Or, as the scripture clearly says, and my wife and I use frequently, Abraham was getting old. Sarah was advanced in years. <laughs> so, around my house, I'm old. My wife is getting advanced in years. (laughs) No child. Okay? We can sit here and think, okay, they didn't know much about biology. They didn't know much about birthing babies. They didn't know this stuff. Trust me, they knew all that. They knew all of that. And they knew that old men and old women didn't have babies. And God says, trust me. It's going to happen. And Abraham said, Okay. And chapter 4 tells us Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That belief that was given to him by God. That was the righteousness of God given to him, and God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And we see the results today. Chapter 5. What do we get when we receive Christ's righteousness? Well, if you look at, therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in suffering. I was doing really well until I hit that verse. You rejoice in suffering? We have peace with God. We have reconciliation. Remember the picture that we've been talking about in the sermons for the last six weeks? There's a wall. We're on one side of it. God's on the other side of it. How do we get through that wall? Justification by faith brings us peace with God. If you've been involved in the sermon series for the last uh, seven weeks, we've worked through Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. This is where we picked up. What we have is peace with God. Our relationship has been reconciled together. Even to the point that our suffering can be used to accomplish God's purpose. It is interesting to me, oftentimes people throw at Christianity as an argument that cannot be refuted. Okay, Christians... If there is a God, why is there suffering in the world? Okay? And we can have discussions about that regarding sin and people's choices to do that which is wrong and that's uh, those uh, actions producing bad consequences. We can have that discussion. But the reality is you can also look at them and say, okay, tell me what your worldview is and how does it address suffering? Suffering is a universal problem. I mean, you can join some Eastern religion that says suffering is just an illusion, but you stick your hand in the fire and it burns. All of humanity has to deal with the problems of suffering. And believe it or not, we're going to talk about that in the book of Ecclesiastes. But no matter how much you sin, God's grace is even greater. That's where chapter 5 ends. We sin more, God gives us more grace. Which brings us to chapter 6. Chapter 6 begins with the great question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Look at the logic of this. A little bit of sin produces a little bit of grace. More sin produces more grace. I want grace. Hey, I've got it. I'm going to sin a whole bunch, and then I'll get all kinds of grace. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul answers the question, heck no. That's the loose translation. By no means. Why? Because we died with Christ and we died to the power of sin. We died with Christ. As an unbeliever, we cannot not sin. That's a strange way of saying it we're always going to sin. You go, wait a minute. I do, as a good pagan, I do lots of things that aren't sin. When you eat a meal and you don't give thanks to God for that meal, either verbally or in your mind, or any, I mean, however you want to do it, you have taken the blessings of God and pretended that you got them on your own. Well, I went to work and I earned the food, the money to buy the food, Who gave you the strength to work, to grow the food? The book of Deuteronomy tells us it's God. However you look at it, you have looked God in the eye and said, No, go away, I'm not interested. That is your life apart from God. When we make it to heaven, I believe... We will not sin. You can have a whole discussion about what that really means. Personally, I think we enter the presence of a holy God clothed in the righteousness of Christ and the thought of sinning at that point would be repugnant to us. We just won't do it. We will not sin. But between our unbelieving life and our glorification in heaven... We live in the real world. We can sin. And we can not sin. And what Paul tells us is, you're going to be the slave to someone. You're going to be the slave to sin that dominates your life, or you're going to be slave to the righteousness of Christ that calls you to live reckoning. That you died with Christ, you were resurrected with Christ, and you no longer have to do those things that before you just did. You can live a life of gratefulness to God for everything that he gives to you. We were buried. We were raised to new life. Yeah. That sounds great. Chapter 7. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing it. Wretched man that I am. Why do I keep having this struggle? There are those who believe that Romans chapter 7 is Paul describing his life before he became a believer. Before I became a believer, I had this inner turmoil I wanted to do, but I didn't. I didn't want to do, but I did. I'm glad that's behind me. I am not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you, how many of you, don't raise your hand. How many of you have an inner struggle with sin in your life? I get angry at my wife, and I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong, and I do it anyway. Oh, wretched man that I am. This is not a description of the life before you accepted Christ. This is the description of the life between the pagan world where you didn't care and glorification where that remnant of sin will be removed from you. This is life in the real world. My argument is simply this. If you're not struggling with sin, you either A have no pulse or B you've given up the fight. Those are the options. And that's what chapter 7 is all about. Chapter 8 Chapter 8 is probably the greatest chapter in the Bible. That's my opinion. Okay. <laughs> One second here. Can you hear me now? Ah. We will swap microphones. Chapter 8 begins, I mean chapter 7 ends, Oh wretched man that I am, who can rescue me? And chapter 8 begins, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we're not walking into the presence of God clothed in our own righteousness. We're walking into the presence of God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And who is going to condemn us? Chapter 8 continues with the discussion of life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. And there's an interesting passage in there. All of nature, all of creation groans because things aren't what they used to be. We're actually going to talk about that uh, those verses next week. Why? Because that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about how to live in that world where things aren't what they ought to be. But then we get into the fabulous verse, Romans 8, 28, that says, and we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Notice that it does not say all things are good. There are good things and there are bad things. What it says is that God will work all things, for good for all of humanity no for those who love God and are called according to his purpose that's a fabulous promise what is the good that he is trying to accomplish and we know that the for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose let's keep reading For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is it that God is trying to do in your life and my life, and that is to conform us to the image of Christ? But wait. I don't want that. I want a new car. I want more money. I want more power. I want more influence. I want more sex. I want more, you fill in the blank with whatever it is. I want to be young again. I want to, I want to, I want to. I don't want to be conformed to the image of Christ. If there was ever a red flag that pops up that you may not be what you think you are, it is Refusing to acknowledge what God is trying to accomplish in your life is to conform you to the image of Christ. What does it take to be conformed to the image of Christ? It takes tearing away a lot of different things. Let's take this out because it's distracting you. Let's take this out because it's sin. Let's take this out just so you'll learn to trust God. What was Christ's number one motivation for all of his life to do the will of the Father? And God is going to do whatever it takes to help us to be conformed to the image of his Son. We know that all things work together for good. We know that says Romans 8:28 but we don't get to, to to define the good God has already defined it now that began an interesting discussion because what does the next verse say and those whom he predestined he also called here and into chapter 9 we had a discussion of the doctrine of predestination. God's righteous choice. You remember chapter 9. I guess we should back up just a minute. Chapter 8 kind of ends the doctrinal half of the book. And if this were a normal letter of Paul, he would follow that with, here's the application of it. And he does in chapter 12. For those of you who are not so good at math, between 8 and 12, there's 9, 10, and 11. Because Paul has one more topic to address. What about the Jews? Did God just mess up or did God give up on the Jewish community? So he starts chapter 9 with the discussion of Abraham's descendants. And he makes the comment, not everyone that is from Abraham is from Abraham. Hmm, that's weird. What he's saying is that there's a path of promise. And then there's the rest of them. And it gets to the verse that we all hate. Jacob have I loved, and Esau I have hated. And we can have a long discussion about what that word hate means, how strong a word is that. But the bottom line is before either one had done anything good or bad, that God's purpose might be revealed, God chose Jacob, and he did not choose Esau. And we talk about this being the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. And it bothers us to no end. The doctrine of predestination simply says this. Before the foundation of the world, God chose. Yeah, but who did he choose? I don't know. What was the basis of that choice? There's the big question. Generally, there's two acceptable answers to that, and lots of different blendings of the two. One, God based his choice on his foreknowledge. God stood looking down the corridor of history, and he goes, if I present the gospel to Bob, will Bob respond? He does, therefore I will Call Bob and I will give him the gospel. Predestination is based on foreknowledge. And there are verses in chapter 8 that kind of lead to that belief. The other option is that God looks down the corridor of history and he chooses based on his sovereign will. (laughs) Let me collapse on the floor. I believe that's what Romans chapter 9 teaches. We had a long discussion. I wanted you to fight against me, and you didn't fight very well. Okay, You didn't put up much of a fight. The dilemma that we get to is to take the doctrine of predestination further than we ever were were told to take it. I believe in the doctrine of predestination, therefore I'm not going to practice evangelism then you're not doing the will of God. God told you to go to all the world and share the gospel. But that doesn't make any sense. That's what God told you to do. Are the words hard to understand? Is it difficult? No. Why? Because regardless of who's called and who's not called, God commanded us to share the gospel. God commanded us to be God's instrument To share the gospel to those who respond. Well, I'll go share the gospel to all those people who are called. No, you don't know who those people are. They don't even know who they are. Do you want to know if you are called to be a Christian? Respond to the gospel. Just respond but I don't want to. I'm going to sit here and with my mind try to analyze this situation and figure out whether I'm part of the elect or not beforehand. No, you'll never do it. Respond to the gospel. There is the uh, picture that is often used that I really like. You're walking toward the gate of heaven and it says, all who will may come. And you walk through the gate... And you look backwards and the sign says chosen before the foundation of the world. Share the gospel with everyone. Don't use the doctrine of election as a lame excuse to disobey what God has commanded you to do. That's not what it was intended. What it was intended to show was that salvation begins with God. You see... All through the book of Romans, we've had this discussion. God is going to save you and he's going to save me in such a way that God is going to get every ounce of the glory and honor. If you show up to the pearly gates and say, yeah, God, you and I, we did a good job. I did my part, you did your part, we did great. God's going to say, who the heck are you? That's a loose translation. God is going to save us in such a way that God gets all of the glory. But wait a minute. Chapter 10, Israel rejected God. Chapter 11, but God still has a remnant. We have this discussion in there that no matter how bad things have gotten throughout history, God has always had a remnant who were faithful. Elijah is sitting there moaning, Woe is me, I am the only person left in the world who follows you, God. And God says, No, you're not. I've got thousands stashed away who have never bowed the knee to Baal. God always has a remnant. And chapter 11 ends with the discussion... If it was great that God used the Jews rejecting Christ to draw the Gentiles to salvation, how much greater will it be when we, the Gentile community, and the Jewish community, recognize Christ as Messiah and we are all united in the body of Christ? That is going to be fabulous. Chapter 12 begins the application of the book of Romans. Romans. The first two verses tell us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? We bring in the mind of Christ. How do we do that? We study the scripture over and over again until it begins to influence our discussion Present your body a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. Don't go out and slit your wrist, but simply take your body off the throne and submit it to the will of God. All of the good things in the New Testament that God wants us to do are predicated on us being conformed to the image of God and not the image of the world. Don't be conformed to the way the world works. And all of chapter 12, there's a discussion of the spiritual gifts. And after that, there's a whole list of things that God wants us to do. All of them tied together with living a life of love as a living sacrifice. How do we love people? You know, I can sit up here and say, you should love your neighbor. And you should. But in our modern mentality, love is oftentimes reduced to a mere emotion. Well, I've got good feelings towards you, okay? That's love. And you ought to have good feelings toward people. But true biblical love goes out and does something for people. And you can read through that list. I think we spent about five weeks going through that list of 26 different things that God would have us to do. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Blah blah etc. 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 It's a list of how we demonstrate love. And if you remember, at that time we also had a discussion about what keeps this list from being legalism. Legalism says, "I'm going to earn my way to heaven." So I go to the Bible, I find some list like this. I say, okay, if I can keep this list, I'm into heaven. If you believe that, you don't believe Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. We can just stop right there. There's nothing on this list that you can do to earn your way into heaven. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the power of the community of believers, We can demonstrate love to one another. Ooh, we skipped that one. If you remember, chapter 13, we are to submit to the civil authorities. And we had a good discussion about that, and I irritated a bunch of you, but so be it. We'll skip that one. (laughs) Chapter 14. What about the weaker brother? Chapters fourteen and fifteen, the start of fifteen, deal with this idea that I'm a believer and I have a certain practice. I don't drink. For example, you're a believer and you think there's nothing wrong with wine with your dinner. I used to tell people I have wine with every meal. The kids would sit around and go, I don't that, I don't like that. Get it, wine? What do we do when believers differ in an area that is not clearly presented in the Scripture? The Scripture says, first of all, you need to become con- fully convinced in your own mind that what you're doing is right. Become Being fully convinced in your own mind doesn't mean, oh, it seems like the right thing to do. There's lots of things that at the time seem like the right thing to do that are very wrong. What it means is you study the scripture, you pray about it, you rely on the Holy Spirit, you ask godly people who are in authority over you, what do you think? And you convince yourself that what you're doing is right. Most of the time, we don't do that. Most of the time, we just jump on something and go, well, hey, it must be right because I want to do it. Chapter 14 ends with the statement that anything that you do, anything that is not done by faith is sin. Every action that you do has a spiritual context to it and we are to study the scripture to know that what we're doing is in line with the understanding that we have of that scripture but wait a minute what if i do that and i come to the conclusion i shouldn't drink and what if you do that and you come to the conclusion it's okay do i get to hate you for that Do I get to despise you for that? Do I get to look down on you for that? The answer is no. I am to show love to you. I am to respect you because we're all seeking after the same thing, and that is the glory of God. Now, we also had a discussion, though, in that chapter about the fact that these are often labeled disputable matters. Drinking, for example. I think in your younger days, y'all probably had a longer list than we have today. You know, playing cards, going to dances, things of that nature. We discussed the fact that a disputable matter is an area that God in the Scripture has not clearly revealed to us what is or is not the right thing to do. It is not just something that people dispute. Because if it's just something that people dispute, everything in the Bible is a disputable matter. There are those who will dispute that Paul wrote the book of Romans, even though it clearly says it in the beginning verses. There are those who will dispute whether Jesus rose from the dead. There are those who will dispute whether Jesus ever lived. There are those who dispute whether you get the picture. There are those who are not interested in, in upholding the authority of the Scripture. They believed the Scripture was simply a human document written by humans that evolved over time and is subject to interpretation any and every way. And they will, in fact, dispute everything. When you are co- becoming convinced in your own mind, when you are reading through the Scripture, relying on the Holy Spirit trusting godly counsel, you need to make sure that you understand that there are those who believe the Bible and there are those who just think it's an interesting book. And you need to decide where the counsel is coming from. I made the observation, and I do believe it. In our day and age, though, it's a radical statement. I believe that biblical sexual morality is not a disputable matter. It just isn't. But wait a minute. Every psychologist in the country says, I don't care. But wait a minute. Every sociologist, I don't care. But every sex therapist says, I don't care. If 99.9% of the population of this nation says that something counter the Scripture is true, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't. That's what chapter 14 is about. Chapter 15 ends with a discussion of the weaker brother and then continues with a discussion of Paul's mission to the Gentile community. And then chapter 16 that we covered last week with all the names and all that stuff is a discussion of all the people that contributed to Paul's life. It wasn't Paul alone, and Paul knew that. He talked about people who saved him, who taught him, who were with him when he needed help. And we too need to acknowledge the fact that we do not do this alone. Back to chapter 12. God gave gifts to the church because he didn't want you to do it on your own. He wanted you to do it in community. That brings us to the end of the book of Romans. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Today, this afternoon, the rest of this week, the rest of this year, the rest of your life, you can live a life of faith that is pleasing to God. But that life of faith is not based on your righteousness it is based on the righteousness of Christ that is given to you. That is the gospel. And if you are here today and you believe that somehow some way you're still working down that list and somehow some way you're going to get to heaven and he's going to grade on the curve and you're not nearly as bad as well your neighbor, you're going to be mistaken. This is not harder This is possible because you cannot, cannot, cannot do it on your own. It wasn't until Martin Luther realized that it is not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, that he was able to recognize the gospel. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel that you have revealed to us. I pray, Lord, that we too would not be ashamed. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.